welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to Health by Heather Hirsch. From the bottom of my heart, I absolutely appreciate it. Today's episode is sponsored by a favorite product of mine, UberLube. I've been recommending this to my patients for years. What I love about UberLube is that they use a silicon base and allergies then are extremely rare. It has no added ingredients like scents, flavors, or spermicides, which are often the very same ingredients that cause irritations or reactions. It's also free of parabens, preservatives, and petrochemicals. And honestly, what I love the most is the chic glass bottle that it comes in and this nice little pump that allows you to get the perfect amount every time, plus no sticky residue. It's latex compatible and fun fact, it can be used underwater. So if you go to uberlube.com, that's U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E.com and use the code podcast, you will get 10% off orders on their website. I know you won't be disappointed. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening in today. Today, I have a super special guest I'm so excited about, and with her busy schedule, I'm so glad the stars aligned. I have Dr. Schufelt. She is the Associate Director of the Barbara Streisand Women's Heart Center and Director of the Women's Hormone and Menopause Program in the Schmidt Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. She also is an associate professor and has done a ton of research. She's an educator. She's a clinician. She has the triple whammy. So we're so excited to have you on today. And I want to just have you introduce yourself and tell our listeners what got you interested in going into women's heart health as you were going through your medical training. Thank you so much, Dr. Hirsch. This is fantastic. And I love this podcast. As you heard, I am an internal medicine doctor. I with a women's health with a women's health and heart disease fellowship training. My interest really in going into women's health and really to address the issues around menopause and heart health started when I was in internal medicine, and that really was I really was interested in women and what made women different than men, and realizing that women are not little men. And so what we got to do is choose our own electives, right? During residency, you get to choose internal medicine electives. And I remember discussing this with my program director and saying, I want to go into women's health. And my first elective rotation, he assigned me to an OBGYN. So that's when I realized, well, there's a little bit more to women's health than bikini medicine. And I didn't want to learn procedures or else I would have probably gone into OBGYN. But I wanted to study everything above and beyond the bikini area. And that really kind of delved my interest into finding out what programs were out there in women's health and learning that there are several additional training fellowships in women's health itself. So my initial goal was to go into general women's health in terms of, of uh, fellowship training. I ended up doing a fellowship training at Cedar sinai Medical Center, which is where I still am. And it was actually one that was dedicated to heart health. And at the time that I did my fellowship, which was a little bit over a decade ago, was when there was so much confusion out and around the results of the Women's Health Initiative. And what was happening during my fellowship, I would be in the cardiology clinic learning about women's heart disease. 
And women, especially midlife women, were so confused and asking, well, my internal medicine doctor doesn't want me on hormone therapy. My OBGYN says hormone therapy is appropriate or I can go on it to alleviate my symptoms. What do I do? So they were using the cardiologist as the tiebreaker. And that's where I really found that there was a need in a special area of medicine and specifically midlife women's medicine to go into to address this. So it was really an interest that was kind of brought out of training. And that's mm. where I that's where I am today. So fascinating and so interesting when we really do see right in front of us that intersectionality between heart health, one of the leading causes of death in women and midlife and menopause. And, and it's so interesting how you guys, how you identified as this tiebreaker during that time. That's really interesting. So tell us a little bit more, expand upon where do the intersections of menopause and heart health meet? It's a great question. And there's a lot of intersect between menopause and heart health. One isn't necessarily caused from the other, but there's a lot of shift and a lot of change that occurs in the fifth and sixth decade of your life that can change some of the risk factors specifically for heart disease. So what do I mean by that? I mean, a long time ago, we always, we thought it was, it was thought, an epidemiologist thought that what happens at menopause is heart disease rates go up and what happens at menopause is estrogen levels go down. So it was always this hypothesis that you give women back estrogen, therefore you prevent heart disease. And we've learned a lot now in the last decade or two decades, that that's not necessarily the case in terms, you don't give women back estrogen to prevent heart disease. What does impact and what is impacted, and some of it's aging itself, um, and some of it is the changes of estrogen in our body. We know that blood pressure starts to go up. You will see women in clinic or in your practice that you might say, look, I've always had a blood pressure in the 100s or 1-teens, and now I can't believe my blood pressure is elevated. I never have had high blood pressure before. Well, that's actually a true, true relation with how the estrogen is lost and how our body has that salt balance in our body, and we start to see blood pressure actually surpass the slope or the curve that we get blood pressure as compared to men. More women have a higher trajectory or more increase after menopause, after the fifth decade, sixth decade of life. So that's one risk factor. Another one is cholesterol changes. Now, women kind of are ahead of the game in terms of cholesterol. We know that there's HDL or healthy cholesterol. There's LDL, which is bad cholesterol, or I call it lousy. So you'll never forget it now. Um, and then we do know that women kind of are ahead of the game in our early premenopausal years, meaning we have a lot of H, healthy cholesterol around, HDL around. And after menopause, what happens, the shift in estrogen itself, we start to see those levels fall. So the levels of HDL go down and the levels of LDL go up. And sometimes triglycerides, which are kind of the instant fat that go into our bloodstream, could go up as well. But giving women back estrogen doesn't reverse that. It's not that that's a treatment, but it's something that women need to be aware of that is also a risk factor for heart disease and how it changes at menopause. What exactly are the risk factors when giving hormone therapy to women who are in menopause and, and, and may have some, maybe developing some of these chronic diseases in terms of their heart health? So whenever you're considering menopause hormone therapy for symptomatic relief and you're a woman, you really need to take into account what I call like the, the twofold, the two-sided consideration. So you've got to consider the heart 
health, you got to consider your family history, and you got to consider your breast health and your breast family history. Now, my, my expertise is in the heart. Obviously, I always walk through the breast family history, but that's just not where my hat is hung. In terms of what I, what I specifically look at is how healthy a woman's heart is in terms of what their risk factors for, and are those risk factors shifting at menopause? Because if a woman's risk factors are now putting them into what we call an intermediate risk, not or a higher risk, not not low risk. We're not telling people who are otherwise healthy who are entering menopause and have no risk factors for heart disease. But you've got to take careful consideration of, of hormone therapy in women who are considered intermediate or even high risk. And in, in those high risk women, we certainly want to try to avoid using hormone therapy because it can sometimes, not always, but can sometimes in that situation precipitate heart heart. Um, disease events, which we know as either blood clots or the worst blood clot you can think of is a stroke. That's a blood clot to the brain, but there's blood clots to the heart, which is a heart attack itself. So mm -hmm. so there's a lot to consider and there's a lot of individualization of your risk factors around that time and, and deep consideration into the person's goals and how bad those symptoms are. And I, I definitely agree with all of that. And that's why I think it's a uh, such an interesting time in a woman's life, and um, it, it makes it, you know, clinically kind of a, a very interesting, not one size fits all kind of approach. So I kind of jumped into a question about some of the more, uh, you know, risk factors in women who are at, at high risk. But let's kind of walk backwards and tell us what are the known risk factors for women in particular for developing heart disease and along that line as we're talking about those risk factors is there any difference between men and women that your um, specialty are starting to think about yeah uh, that's another area of research and of knowledge that we certainly know there's a lot of different risk factors that are specific to women but there are something we call the traditional traditional risk factors Whereas I don't like, because everything's non-traditional. Well, I don't think women are non-traditional. I think these are also probably traditional risk factors in women. But these are risk factors that are seen in both men and women that we know cross genders and are, are associated with heart disease. So number one would be high cholesterol. Those are, that's that LDL and HDL. Number two would be high blood pressure. So the, again, starting to spike up after, after menopause. We know diabetes um, is a risk factor for both uh, men and women. And smoking, although the rates are going down, we certainly know that that's a risk factor and the data really is out there that while those, it's a very lower percentage of smoking, we need to take into consider secondhand smoke and then other forms of smoking as, uh, as certain states approve medica um, medications, marijuana, for example, but that's also considered smoking. So um, that's an important risk factor for heart health. Um, Family history. So if you have a family history of a, of a first-degree relative, so mom or dad um, or sibling, who's had a heart disease under the age of 55, um, so that would be a heart attack or a stroke or something more along those severe, if it's a man or under the age of 65, if it's a woman, that is also a risk factor. So uh, those are the real main risk factors for heart disease that cross both genders. I will also say physical inactivity and is, uh, is itself also a traditional risk factor mm -hmm. that, um, that is coupled with obesity and being overweight. So those cross both genders. Now, what would be more specific, which is what your question is getting to about women, um, and this is really where 
the knowledge needs to get out there to not only providers, but also people that are listening today. So um, traditional risk factors cover both men and women. Now, sex-specific risk factors specifically to women. Well, number one, women are unique. We can get pregnant. Not every woman gets pregnant but or has a child or of childbearing age, but about 80% of to 90% of the population does. So what happens during pregnancy is also important. So that's considered, so if you developed high blood pressure during pregnancy, had a preterm delivery that was spontaneous for no reason, other than you just had an early delivery, uh, you developed, you had high blood pressure going into pregnancy, but it wasn't well controlled during pregnancy. You developed gestational diabetes or diabetes that was specific to pregnancy, but resolved after delivery or you developed a severe form of high blood pressure, which is preeclampsia or eclampsia that forced you to deliver the baby. Um, we all know now those are at increased risk factors for future and early cardiovascular disease events. So that's kind of a number one thing. So what happens during pregnancy does not stay during pregnancy. Just because you deliver, it doesn't mean that um, that risk factor has gone away. So that, so those are important, and that's why we started a postpartum health clinic at Cedar sinai Schmidt Heart Institute, so that we can work alongside of our OBGYNs in identifying women that are in the hospital that might have had this delivery, and that we can start as soon as six months postpartum in checking blood pressure, making sure cholesterol numbers. Of course, you don't want to measure a cholesterol when you're breastfeeding because that can also be it can look a little bit abnormal, but we certainly know that we need to start checking these and. It's not just okay at that point just to have your OB checks after you've had a baby. So if that's a risk factor specifically to you, you might want to talk to your doctor about that. That is such an important point. And also, I think that, um, I think you're absolutely right. What happens in pregnancy tends to stay in pregnancy. And your message is really, those are little tests of your physiology of your body. And they're really important for the implications later. And so for anyone who's listening, if you've ever had one of those diagnoses and your doctor hasn't asked about it, or it might not be in your medical history, if you ever see that paper when you leave the doctor's office, it's so important to mention if you had a gestational diabetes or gestational high blood pressure. So I think that is such an important point. That is, that's, that's, that's so important. Yeah, and we, we've here at Cedar sinai has taken this even a little bit additional step because a lot of the, the data shows that if a woman's in her 50s or 60s, she might not recall or remember back when she had a baby if she had that delivery. So much is going on when you're in the delivery room. You're not really paying attention to blood pressure numbers. But we've allowed now our electronic medical records, a section in the OB section, to include that if they have a delivery in our hospital or in our hospital systems to indicate if that was a if they had gestational diabetes or high blood pressure during pregnancy or even preeclampsia or eclampsia or preterm delivery. So that that kind of takes the burden and puts it more on the provider also to bring that up. But until we do that nationwide, it really is up to a woman. And even if you think that you might have had a, a delivery that was one of these adverse, what we call adverse pregnancy outcomes, it's important to talk to your doctor about that and stay on top of your heart health numbers. Yeah, so important. That's a um, really, really valuable chunk of information. Any other, um, you know, before I ask you another question, any other risk factors that are particularly um, pertinent to women in particular? So, there are several others that are pertinent and particular to women. And, you know, this is, this is where the 
American Heart Association has made the campaigns for, for awareness and heart disease in women a, a red dress symbol. And we know the breast cancer symbol, of course, is the pink ribbon. And this is where I think we need to have almost like a striped pink red dress to go on together because what we see now is that women who have treatment for breast cancer, and by, by all means, we've done a tremendous job in treatment, in survival, and in awareness of breast cancer. And that's led to a significant number of long-term survival. Now we have this whole area of medicine called survivalist medicine right, in terms of, but we need to be important and aware that some of the chemotherapies that are given during breast cancer or even cancer treatment, I'm specifically talking about breast cancer here, but it's all women's health cancers, and this can also cross over into men's health as well, but there are some specific ones that can cause some damage to the small blood vessels. We know that there's radiation specifically to the chest wall. There's now doing lower radiation treatments, and they're doing chest wall, uh, they're doing different types of, of um, radiation given in the prone position, which is you're laying down on your, on your chest and the breast is pulled away from the chest wall because what sits right behind the left breast is the heart itself. And so um, we know that prior radiation doses and prior ways that it was given can affect the chest, the tissue of the heart itself because we know radiation doesn't just stop at the chest wall. So awareness about that, especially if you've been through chemotherapy or radiation therapy, that's an important risk factor to, to talk to your doctor about for heart health. Not necessarily that it's changing some of the risk factors, but it, it itself can be a risk factor for heart disease. Yeah, that is, that's, that's really another big one. I love the idea of the pink and the white, or I love the pink idea of the red and the pink. And uh, in, in, in really kind of, not only does it demonstrate they're both important, but that they're intertwined. They're intertwined and it's a lot of women's health is about awareness. And so that's where these awareness campaigns work. So um, yeah. another risk factor that's really interesting and really has come up more so in the last decade is autoimmune diseases. So we know that women who have autoimmune diseases such as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, a lot of those are female diseases. The majority of women who have lupus, a majority of cases of lupus are in women. And we know that a lot of rheumatological diseases or disorders, autoimmune diseases, disorders, have risk factors that can increase cardiovascular risk factors. So things like high cholesterol, high um, blood pressure, they cross over. So there's a lot of crossover between those two disorders. But in and of itself, autoimmune disorders are associated with a lot of inflammation. And now if you look back to the root of what really starts cardiovascular disease and lays down kind of the ability to make plaque and, and block some of the arteries, is inflammation. So we do want to think about those disorders. It's not necessarily that if you have an autoimmune disorder that you are going to get heart disease. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that that's an important risk factor to talk specifically about to your doctor in terms of your heart health. What about the role that hot flashes play? Do we know anything about the role persistent or severe hot flashes may play in heart disease? Are they related? Are they not related? Or are we still trying to figure out that relationship? So uh, we've looked at this in, in terms of studies as well as some of other um, na national observational studies. Now it's important to note that when you look at an observational study, it doesn't mean that one 
that if you're, you're finding is causal, meaning that if we find that hot flashes and heart disease are together, that doesn't mean that hot flashes causes heart disease. We just know that there's a, an association. And so we'd found in the women's ischemia syndrome evaluation, we looked at women who came in with chest pain to the hospital. It's a long-term study now been going on for a couple decades and followed these women over time and noted that the more severe their hot flashes were, were associated with more cardiovascular events. That's also been replicated in some other large observational studies, such as the Women's Health Initiative um, and, and, and another and several others across the country. So is there an association? There seems to be an association. Is it a risk factor? I don't think we can say that. We don't have enough information there yet. But, and of course, 75 to 80% of women have hot flashes. So we don't want you to go you know, to feel nervous that the, because I'm having severe hot flashes. But we do think it might be a signal. What is a hot flash? It is a dysfunction of a blood vessel because your vasos, you know, your blood vessels are dilating and then they're constricting, you're feeling hot, you're feeling cold. The area of your brain that has this thermoregulatory or your thermostat is a little bit off in terms of you. when you're hot, other people might not be next to you. So uh, it, it could be that there's a suggestion that, that this is then related to other blood vessels such as your heart, but it's just too early to say that yes, this is a relationship that we should be concerned about. Yeah. I think that's an important, uh, important point is that it, it, there is this tendency when we find an association to immediately link them and there's a lot more that we have to do before we can really clearly say that they're directly linked. Um, so that's, that's kind of another clarification because it's so important about those associations. So there's like an associated risk, but we haven't connected the dots and there could be many dots, so we just don't know. Yeah. So for women who are at high risk, um, we just talked about some of the women who may be at higher risk. They had um, peripartum or postpartum complications, uh, chemotherapy, uh, autoimmune conditions that can put them at high risk. Also high blood pressure, um, being overweight. We talked about all those at the beginning as well. What suggestions do you have for them to stay proactive about their heart health? Because it's so important. Yeah, well, the cornerstone of heart health really can encompass everyone from healthy to those that are intermediate or those that we consider high risk. And that's really lifestyle. I mean, that's the, that's the cornerstone of every prevention. If you look at cardiovascular prevention, if you look at cancer prevention, and that's really to get out there and do your exercise, 150 minutes of moderate exercise per day. That's 30 minutes a day um, with a day off. And, um, and with that being said, you know, Diet is important, you know, avoid, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables, half your plate. So that's the backbone. Um, if you are at higher risk or if you have a family history, you definitely want to pay attention. Everyone needs to pay attention to their cholesterol numbers, their blood pressure numbers, and in, and then sometimes your doctor will calculate a, a risk factor for what, how, what your risk is for the next 10 years for developing heart disease. And if you haven't, or if they've never told you that they've done that, you might ask to have that done. It's based on the fact that it's different for a man and a woman. It's different based on race. It's different based on your blood pressure, your cholesterol numbers, whether you're a smoker, whether you have diabetes or are being treated with diabetes. And of all things, it depends whether or not you're on aspirin or if you're on a medication called a statin. So if you fall into kind of an intermediate or high risk, if you're a high risk, 
we certainly want to do some additional testing or even put you on medications to really prevent the risk of developing future heart disease. Everybody that I see in my clinic, if it's for menopause or if it's for heart health or if it's for prevention, I'm looking at you two to three decades from now and I want to make sure you're staying healthy. I'm, not, I'm looking at your numbers now, but I'm explaining to you that I'm doing these things because I want you to be here in the next two to three to four decades, whatever their ages are, and that's important to me. Now, if you fall into an intermediate risk, it might be that we would recommend additional cardiac screening tests. And what do I mean by that? Um, if you have these additional risk factors, we might recommend something called a coronary calcium scan. And that's actually a calcium score for your heart. It is a cat scan, so it's important to take into consideration, albeit low-dose radiation, but it is still radiation. And in a woman, we, we're very concerned about radiation. We might get additional blood tests above and beyond just your traditional um, cholesterol panel. We might be looking at some of these inflammation markers that I was mentioning earlier as well. Mm -hmm. So those are the, the, the kind of the step-by-step -step playbook in terms of how we look at your heart health mm -hmm. um, coupled with the lifestyle. That is such a good outline. I'm, I'm kind of hoping and preparing that um, if we get to to put this uh, recording somewhere where people can see it, it'd be so great. I can really put all these things out people and lay them out for people because that you're giving just so many good pieces of advice and information for women about calculating their risk. You know, when I practiced internal me internal medicine, I always really advocated for my patients to understand their ASC. CBD risk score, which is calculation based on your age and your sex and all those other factors you mentioned. I find that a lot of women haven't had that done and it can really make a big difference in terms of their outcomes and how we're going to treat them. And I love how you said that when we're thinking about you two to three decades later. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is all and this is all primary prevention. So this is preventing first cardiovascular event. When you're talking about prevention, that's what we, we focus on. If you've already had a heart attack or if you've already had a cardiovascular event, that we, that it's, that's treated a little bit differently as opposed to prevention. But this is focusing on now those intermediate and high-risk individuals that we're thinking about how to prevent you from ever having to be in the hospital for cardiovascular yeah. disease. That's really great to, cl to clarify is that we've been pretty much talking in this last section about women who have not had any pre-existing heart disease. Right. So mm -hmm. even if you're in this high risk and you're thinking to yourself, but I've never had heart disease, we're talking about prevention to preventing the heart disease. Yeah, exactly. so different classification if you've already had or are already been diagnosed with a heart issue. So good point. What's new on the horizon for women in heart health? We've talked a lot about specific risk factors for women. Is there anything new on the horizon for women in particular? There are. And I think I want to bring it back to menopause because I, you know, we talked about things that have happened after menopause in terms of your heart health risk factors, but we're all, you and I are assuming this is natural menopause, age at natural menopause in the United States being 51. What I do want to talk about is premature menopause. So menopause that occurs under the age of 40 or even earlier in young women, there's a condition called premature ovarian insufficiency where the ovaries are insufficient. They're not producing estrogen. Estrogen plays a vital role in the reproductive health of a woman. And 
during those years, it's important to, to maintain and have estrogen in your body. So if you enter menopause early or premature, it's important to also assess not only your cardiovascular risk factors, but talk to your doctor if you're otherwise healthy about using estrogen through the time of what we would consider natural menopause, because that can really impact your heart health up to the age of about 50 or 51. And there's been several studies now, specifically the nurses health study. We're looking at it right now in the women's health initiative where women undergo early surgical menopause by getting their ovaries removed early, not so much anymore, but there's a whole now area of men of medicine, of women's health medicine, where women are getting their ovaries removed from a genetic mutation, such as BRCA, that we need to take into consideration what happens two to three decades after you remove an early, and you go into menopause early, whether it's from surgery or whether it's just natural, you go into premature menopause or premature ovarian insufficiency. And then there's a new class of menopause that I do want women to be aware of. We talked about chemotherapy and how it impacts the heart, but there's also chemopause, where women go through chemotherapy for their treatments and that actually induces menopause at an early age. So it's really understanding the role of what estrogen does during what would be a reproductive years. And it's okay, if you're not reproductive, that's still fine, but it's important to remember that those were years that your body should or would have estrogen otherwise. And then the other consideration are younger women, younger than premature ovarian insufficiency. We're talking about teen teenagers to 20 year olds. And there's a condition where women either get overstressed, they overexercise, or they undereat, or a combination of all three of those. That condition is called hypothalamic amenorrhea. And that your body basically shuts off the signal to your ovary because it's like, look, you're you're too stressed or you're too overexercising that you can't hold, you can't nurture and get pregnant. You're not gonna be able to take care of a fetus. So what it does is it shuts off the ovary and what happens in that condition is you've got women who are in their teens and 20s and 30s that are walking around with air levels of estrogen that are similar to menopause. And we already know these women are at increased risk for fractures and we're just discovering that they might be at an increased risk for heart health. So um, there's a whole area of importance in terms of, of the way estrogen plays out over a woman's health cycle. I've always touted this, that women's health is really broken down into three areas. You've got reproductive health, you've got midlife women's health, and then you've got midlife women's health and beyond. And it really is three separate areas that are so unique and makes women's health so exciting and at the same time so important to understand all this knowledge. I could not agree with you more. I think you and I think about menopause all the time, and we know that not all menopause is created equal. And specifically in our patients who are menopausal at a much younger age, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of research and new understanding of that actually having some risk factors, some cardi cardiovascular risk factors. So identifying that you're menopause and knowing that it's not uh, falls under that natural menopause, the average age in the United States is 51 and a half. But if you've had menopause for you know early reasons, whether it was unplanned and unplanned or emergency, oophorectomy that take out both your ovaries, premature ovarian insufficiency, um, something that often, not always, but often is diagnosed when if you're uh, trying to get pregnant. And, right now. 
And, but you bring up such an important point is that not all menopause is treated equally. And looking at these very specific and maybe more rare cases highlights some of the different physiology between women who are having natural menopause. So that's such exactly. an important point. And I think you're absolutely right. There's been a lot more looking into that in the last couple of years. Yeah, I just think we're, we're just touching the tip of the iceberg in terms of our knowledge. And the great thing is, is that the focus now is on this. The focus has kind of shifted since we've learned so much about hormone replacement therapy or hormone menopause hormone therapy. In a woman who goes through natural menopause or, or is older, we now know we don't start hormone therapy after it's been 10 years since menopause. So the shift and the focus now is turning towards these younger women. And, and I think that just speaks to the fact that there's this knowledge, there is a knowledge gap and we have such an area of, of need to address in terms of research. Yeah, and you're, you're um, a particularly interesting subset that is, is just, we're just starting to look at. You mentioned before is anyone who's been diagnosed with a BRCA mutation or an otherwise higher risk for breast cancer mm -hmm. who has their ovaries removed, the recommendations are after childbearing or around or before age 40, what are the risks? And, you know, we definitely, you know, but so focused on the risks of preventing breast cancer because we absolutely don't want anyone to have that risk. But what are the other risks, especially for heart on the other side? There's so much interesting physiological changes and protocols that we just don't yet have entirely in place. And, and there's so much in that population and, and all of these populations make them very special. And if this happens to be a population that you are in, we're glad you're listening to this podcast. It's going to really help you be proactive in talking to your doctors and thinking about some of these things uh, that don't follow the same patterns as you know, our traditional menopause. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you is if you're currently listening to this, we're recording this, it's May 20th and uh, 2020. So it's no secret that there's been a pandemic going on. You know, and so I kind of just wanted to ask you, and we don't have to get too deep because things are evolving so rapidly, but you know, do you think the situation has been affecting uh, women in particular because what heart disease is a leading cause of death in women, do you, you know, any sort of insight, you know, not necessarily that it has to be perfectly scientific, but anything that you think you're seeing or trends that you think may be important that we need to think about as the pandemic goes or, you know, into the next year or so? Yes, uh, th this is a challenging time for everybody. It's a challenging time as a physician because I don't get to sit and with my patients. I have to do this over Zoom or over telemedicine. And a lot of what's come up on my research, on my visits with patients, specifically menopausal patients, is mood and depression and how it was a you know the, I think everybody has a threshold for how long they can shelter at home or be at home. But I think this is pretty profound, the number of weeks now we've had to go on and we've all done a great job and flattened the curve. But I think this is specifically for menopausal women and perimenopausal women playing a big impact on our mood health. We do know a lot about how shifting hormones impacts mood. And I'm going to bring this back to heart health in a second. So, but we do know how shifting hormones, particularly in perimenopause and menopause, impacts mood specifically to women who are more prone to having had a depressive episode in their life 
you can even think about postpartum depression or if you've ever had anxiety or depression at one point in your life, you're up to 70% more likely to have that come back during perimenopause and menopause. In fact, there's a great position statement by the Menopause Society specifically on that and addressing that. Um, but I think as this shelter at home has gone on further and longer in time and women are, who are own their own businesses and raising their own families, there's that added stress, and now it's just it's just kind of been that what last slip of the banana peel, and a lot of women have really kind of tipped over into that depression. Now, how does that play a role on your heart health? Well, women who are depressed have more than two times likely risk of cardiovascular events, and as opposed to men. So as opposed to as opposed to men, and opposed as opposed to women who are not depressed. So I urge you, if you are having challenges with your mood, if you are, quite frankly, not finding joy in other things that you've gone through or used to find joy in, to really reach out to your provider. And it, it, you're not alone right now. This is a very challenging time. Menopause and perimenopause is a challenging time as it is for um, mood. And then you add this on top of it. And I, and I would just encourage everyone to get out and talk to their provider. And, and it's okay that if you need to talk to somebody or have a therapist appointment over Zoom or telemedicine, or even maybe start a short-term uh, medication if it's appropriate for you to, to really talk to your provider about that. Because this is going to have a profound impact. You know, right now we're looking at the COVID cases. I say that there's four, really four phases of COVID and the pandemic itself. So right now we've got the active COVID infections that are being hospitalized. People are being treated for their shortness of breath and all, and they're met, and even possibly in the ICU. Then we're going to see a phase two, which is really kind of our chronic diseases that have really been under treated and 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 misrepresented, or patients are avoiding going to the emergency room. That's going to be the phase two. Phase three, I think, is really going to be possibly the depression, and I think it's probably going to cover over phase one, two, and three, is going to be the, the psychological impact of the COVID pandemic itself. And phase four, I would also like in the fact that this isn't affecting just patients. This is also affecting providers. And so you've got providers that are going into the hospital on the front lines and then they're going home to their family or even possibly not going home to your family. Our hospital has set up our uh, some of our providers with local hotel rooms so that they don't have to go home to their family. So I think there's going to be that aspect of, of psychological mood changes in the providers that are on the front line. And, and part, quite, quite honestly, you know, it's going to impact all three phases as you go forward. You know, such an important point about how the mood and rates of depression affecting heart disease. That is so important for women to be able to link those. And um, I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's going to be, uh, the way you sort of laid out these four phases is something that we're going to have to slowly work through as a, you know, the provider side, community provider side, as well as um, the lay, lay people side. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's sort of funny to think about we, you know, physicians sort of sit in this dual role. We're, we're also lay people on our, you know, the other half of our time when we're not working. And um, I, 
I think you make that there's just going to be a lot that that is downstream effects once we do have this under better control which hopefully we do soon so yeah but I think honestly and uh, while I do like I laid out all of those phases I do think being aware of them is important and I think being aware of depression and how you're not alone is important it's just it's not only important for your mental health it's important for your heart health so I would encourage people to talk to their providers um, it's just yeah. as important yeah, I always say if possible, take a 5, 10, 20 minute walk outside. It's one of the cheapest and easiest and immediate things I can think of for mood um, to help, you know, just get your blood flowing and moving around. But I agree, definitely reach out and, and talk about it. I think if we sit and suffer in silence, we don't reach out, we don't connect. Um, yeah. These things can definitely worsen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and just sprinkling us with all of your knowledge. This has been so great. This is actually the first podcast I've been able to do dedicated to heart health um, with such an expert and I'm, and, and I'm so excited. Any other last you know, thoughts or comments you wanted to um, leave us with? I think I covered probably one of my most important, my most important soapbox <laughs> arguments is that women's health really needs to be its own specialty. We need to have more menopause providers. And if you are in an area where you don't know what a menopause provider is, you can look on menopause.org. That's an organization uh, by the North American Menopause Society, which I'm leadership within, but, but um, we're both members of. It is a physician organization of multidisciplinary doctors, endocrinologists, cardiologists, internal medicine, OBGYN, and it is uh, dedicated to not only women's health, but also midlife women's health. And there's a way that you can uh, identify in your area if there is a menopause practitioner. And this is a certification that we have to maintain. It's not, it doesn't go away. We, after, we, it's not a one-time thing, but it's an, it's an exam that's not very easy. And every two years we have to recertify. So, and that means that we just need to stay on top of all of the midlife women's health from, from head to toe. And if you're struggling or if you have questions and want to find out or reach out, that's a great way to find a provider in your area or possibly not in your area now because we have so much telemedicine. I think that that's also going to change the way we practice midlife women's health. Yeah, exactly. That's a great, that's a great point. I always, um, anyone who's listened to this podcast before knows I always mention menopause.org and go into the top right hand corner and click find a provider and type in your zip code to find a NAM certified physician. Um, and I know I have a lot of residents who listen to this and medical students who listen to this. Women's health is an immensely exciting career. There is endless questions to answer, especially as we are in a really exciting exciting decade where sex and biology and gender are, you know, coming to light in terms of how they inter intersect with um, chronic diseases, diagnosis, treatment, you know, perceptions of just everything. It's such a wonderful field to be in. So I will definitely link um, a couple of your uh, social media outlets if anyone wants to follow you there and see what you're up to. That's great. Thank you so much. Thanks for yeah. having me. Well, thank you so much for giving us a piece of your time today. We really, really appreciate it. We're so excited to have uh, been able to connect today. So, well, thank you everyone so much for listening in. If you like this podcast, feel free to leave us a review. It's so helpful. And uh, have a wonderful rest of your day and evening. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.